everybody. Good to see you all again. Uh, I see we're keeping up the trend of cake when I'm here. Pretty hilarious. Um, that would be hilarious if that was just like a collective practical joke you decided to... <laughs> it wouldn't be the strangest thing that ever happened to me. Uh, but I hear it's your birthday, Matt. Is that right? Tomorrow, happy birthday. 31, right? 32, okay. Just wanted to clear that up. Uh, well, uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Chris. Uh, I'm from uh, Trails Church, and actually last Sunday we celebrated our uh, third anniversary, which was pretty awesome. So we're, we're grateful uh, for what the Lord's done in the life of our church, and glad to be here with you all this Sunday. So uh, we are in Matthew 12, 15 through 21 today, and I ask that you would uh, turn there. Uh, and we have a, a bit of an odd kind of text before us today in Matthew 12. And not odd in terms of its content. The content of it is obviously beautiful, but that is, it's an uncommon or unique kind of passage than what we might normally find in the Gospels. It isn't a miracle story. It isn't a parable or a piece of a larger discourse. In fact, most of our text today doesn't even come from Matthew. After two short verses of setup in Matthew 12, 15 through 16, we have an extended quotation from the book of Isaiah. That's what I mean today that our passage uh, is kind of odd because most of our sermon today from Matthew isn't even from Matthew. Now, many of you who have studied the Bible for a long time know that it is commonplace for the New Testament authors to quote or allude to passages and stories from the Old Testament. It happens all over the place throughout all the books in the New Testament. Now, for those of you who might be newer to the Bible, uh, be aware that the New Testament authors quote passages from the Old for many different reasons, and sometimes for several reasons all at the same time. And we see the very same thing here in Matthew 12, 15 through 21. There are several specific reasons that Matthew has strategically and intentionally placed this passage from Isaiah in his gospel narrative. And it must be important, as this is the longest quoted text in all of Matthew's gospel. And oddly enough, it also seems kind of like a break in the story, or a break in the action, if you will. Now, part of the reason for that is because this section, verses 15 through 21, function as a bit of a transition. Bible scholars sometimes call these uh, hinge passages, or hinge texts in the gospels. These verses are a hinge or a transition between larger sections of the story. But these sections are a lot more important than just a travel montage or just a fast forward to, through the story to the next point of action. Importantly, they often help explain what they are bookended between. There is another one of, this is another one of many reasons why understanding a text within its context is so important. Because where our text today is placed is within its larger context is essential to understanding what it is that Matthew is intending his audience to learn. So what is the context? What are these bookends that our passage today is stuck between? Well, last week y'all looked at uh, chapter 12 verses 1 through 14 where Jesus had two clashes with the Pharisees over the Sabbath. Jesus dramatically declared in verse 8, that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And to add to the controversy, heals a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And the passage ends in verse 14 with the Pharisees conspiring together to destroy Jesus. That passage is a story full of opposition. Jesus faces his strongest opposition from the Jewish leadership up to this point. And what do we see in what y'all will study next week? In verses 22 and following, Jesus is formally rejected as the Messiah by the Jewish leadership. The Pharisees commit what Jesus calls the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the sin that will not be forgiven, which is attributing the power of the Spirit at work in Jesus to the power of Satan. The Pharisees have made up their minds and now there is no turning back. Jesus is rejected as Messiah, 
And as we will see, this becomes a turning point in Jesus' ministry. So this is the context of our passage today. Bookended between opposition on the one hand and rejection on the other. But it is in the midst of that opposition and rejection that Matthew wants to draw our attention. He wants to draw our attention to several very important details about what God has already declared that his Messiah would be like. And this is where we read today. So I ask now that you would stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's word. Matthew 12, starting in verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Father, we ask now for your blessing, for your guidance as we look to study this, this your word before us. Father, Lord, I pray that we would be captivated by this portrait of Christ and that we would seek to pursue Christ's likeness in all things. Lord, give us understanding and convict us in areas where we need to humble ourselves before your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, right in between opposition and rejection, here we have this passage. There is intense opposition against Jesus on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees want to kill him. And so what does he do? Well, because he was aware of their murderous intent, Jesus gets out of Dodge. This shouldn't be surprising to us, as this is the pattern that Jesus exhibits throughout his ministry. He ministers and preaches. Opposition against him grows. Because his time has not yet come, he withdraws, and then he continues ministering. That's the pattern of Jesus' ministry. And that's what happens here. The people follow him, and he continues to serve them by healing them. But again, we see the puzzling statement in verse 16 that Jesus ordered them not to make him known, which, again, just sounds rather strange. This has already happened a couple times in Matthew's Gospel, and he says the same again here for the same reasons. First, is that Jesus does not want to be publicized or merely known as a miracle worker or a healer. Jesus is very concerned about the testimony made about him. He is much more than a prophet or a wonder worker. He is the Messiah. And secondly, he withdrew in order to avoid the attention and opposition. Then we read in verse 17 that this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Well, I was scratching my head this week because this begs the question, what is the this that's being fulfilled? What is Matthew talking about here? Is it the fact that Jesus told those who he healed not to make him known? Or is it the fact that he healed people? Or... Is it that he withdrew from opposition? Or is it that the Pharisees were seeking to destroy him? Or is it all of these things? In the midst of conflict with the Pharisees, Jesus' conduct in his continued ministry was fulfilled prophecy. But here's, here's the thing, though. The passage in Isaiah is... A summary describing what the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, would be like and what he would do. 
It's a summary about the Messiah. It doesn't, it doesn't refer to anything specific going on in the story right here. As he, at least that's what it seems. So why now? Why here does Matthew quote this amazing and powerful prophecy from Isaiah? Well, let's remember who Matthew's primary audience for his gospel was. Matthew was writing primarily to a Jewish audience. He wrote primarily to convince his own people that Yeshua of Nazareth was the promised Messiah of Israel. But he had a lot of work cut out for him because there was a lot that the Jewish people didn't understand about the Messiah which needed to be corrected. First and foremost, what kind of Messiah were the Jewish people desiring and expecting? A conqueror who would throw out the Romans. They expected a military leader who would forcefully establish his rule over a liberated nation of Israel. That is what they were expecting and desiring. But that is not what they got. But this actually answers the question of why here. This is the reason why Matthew has strategically and intentionally placed this prophecy at this point in the gospel. Because it is at this point in the ministry of Jesus that the Jewish reader would be saying, Whoa, whoa, whoa! You're trying to tell me this guy is the Messiah? The guy who's opposed and rejected? Matthew has intentionally placed this prophecy right here in between opposition and rejection to remind his readers that all of this is in fact all according to plan. It's all according to plan. A Messiah that was opposed and rejected by the Jewish leadership was unthinkable to what most Jews expected the Messiah's ministry would be like. Remember back to chapter 11. Even John the Baptist began to doubt that Jesus was really the Messiah. John the Baptist understood the kind of Messiah that Jesus would be. He knew he was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. But he did not expect that he would be rejected even by his own people. And even he began to doubt. And so for the average Jewish reader, and even for us modern readers, a Savior who is opposed and rejected by his own people, I mean, it seems rather counterintuitive. I mean, we know the story, and we expect it, but... A savior opposed and rejected by his own people would run contrary to maybe what we would expect. Is he really it? And so Isaiah's words are intended as a word of clarity and reassurance that this is exactly part of God's plan. This is what God said the Messiah's ministry would be like recorded seven centuries prior to the life of Jesus, the book of Isaiah contains some of the most powerful and specific prophecies of the Messiah. Some of the most important uh, are a few sections of Isaiah called the servant songs, which describe a servant of the Lord who would come and suffer for his people. The most famous of which being the passage in Isaiah 53 which speaks most clearly about the substitutionary death of Jesus. And here in the text that Matthew quotes from Isaiah 42, 1-4, we find the first of the suffering servant songs, which Matthew includes here to reassure us and remind us, don't worry, don't worry, this is all a part of what God has planned. But this is an important theological point Matthew needs his Jewish readers to understand. Remember that the gospel writer is painting a theological portrait of Christ, filling out the details of his character and nature, story after story, and fulfilled prophecy after fulfilled prophecy. 
Heretofore, Matthew has begun to develop the reality that Jesus is the true Son of God and begun to prove that Jesus is the Messianic King, the anticipated Son of David. But he also needs to demonstrate and clarify, contrary to the expectations of a liberating military leader, Jesus was also prophesied as the suffering servant of the Lord. In doing so, Matthew also works to clarify and teach his readers about the character of the Messiah and about the purposes of his coming, which were even grander than the Jewish people expected. As one author explains, in the face of rejection by the nation of Israel, Matthew, by messianic prophecy, prepares his Jewish reader for the proclamation of a worldwide Savior. So now, now that we've understood the reason for this quotation in context, let us look now to what it actually has to say about Jesus' character and his ministry. Well, what I'd like you to do is to keep your finger in Matthew 12 and turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 42. All right. Now, the reason for this is that in order to understand what this text in Isaiah means, we have to understand it within its context as well. This is a very important tool for our Bible study tool belts. When a New Testament author quotes a passage from the Old, look down at the footnote that the translation editors have put there. They've done the hard work for you. They tell you where you can find that quoted passage. So go back. Go back to the Old Testament where that passage is in its context and study it and understand where, what it's saying in its context so that you can make sure you understand how the New Testament author is using it. So if you haven't already, turn with me. Go to Isaiah 42 and let's read the passage there. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait for his law. Now, what do we more immediately notice here? It's kind of different. And when we read it here in Isaiah, there are some pretty significant changes between how Matthew quotes the passage. Now, what's going on here? Does Matthew have a bad memory? No. Well, let's see what he's doing here. Matthew is doing something that, while it kind of raises our eyebrows, isn't something all that uncommon for New Testament authors to do. Matthew is quoting from both the Hebrew text and from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. During the 400 years known as the intertestamental period, Greek became the primary spoken language of the Jewish people, especially among those who lived outside of the Promised Land. This led to the translation of the Old Testament from the Hebrew into Greek, which is called the Septuagint. It is very common for the New Testament authors to quote from the Septuagint, but here Matthew does something a bit different and combines parts of the Hebrew and the Greek text in order to clearly highlight the themes that he wants us to notice. He opts for the Septuagint translation for the lines that are more explanatory. It's kind of like how we will consult different English translations of the Bible to, because it might help us better understand a passage. It's a similar idea. We see this most clearly in the last line, verse 4. And the coastlands will wait for his law, but we read in Matthew 12, 21, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Now Matthew quotes that line verbatim from the Greek Old Testament. But how did he get from one, or how did they get from one to the other? Well, coastlands are a poetical way of referring to Gentile nations throughout Isaiah, and to wait expectantly is to hope. Now, the reason that any of this is important, because I imagine some of you are like, why does any of this matter? Uh, Well, because this is the theme that Matthew 
specifically wants his readers to understand from this text, especially his Jewish audience, that the Messiah's coming would not just be for Israel. It's much bigger than that. He came as a hope for the nations. But Matthew's choice of verbiage isn't the only reason that I see this as essential to the main idea of this text. Why? Well, because when we look back at Isaiah 42, 1-4 in context, we see that understanding this coming worldwide hope for the nations is also what Isaiah is teaching. Remember, this is why we need to look back and study and understand the context of, of the Old Testament in order to properly understand how a New Testament author is using it. Now, this larger section of Isaiah, chapters 40, all the way through 42, follows right after some of the bleakest news ever delivered in the life of the people of Israel. Recall that at this point in history, the northern kingdom of Israel has long since been conquered by the Assyrians, and the southern kingdom of Judah is just hanging on by a thread. And now, in chapter 39 of Isaiah, the prophet delivers the news to King Hezekiah that Babylon, they're coming. Judgment is pronounced that in the days of his sons, the Babylonians will defeat Judah and take the people into exile. No more warnings. No more unless he repents. This is unconditional. Judgment is coming. But what are the very next words of Isaiah chapter 40? Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. In a complete shift of tone, what follows the sorrowful news of judgment immediately turns to hope. What follows in chapter 40 through 41 is a beautiful, stunning message of hope, calling the people of Judah to look to the future in hope and to be reminded of the care and power of their God. But interestingly, the scene changes yet again in verses 41, in chapter 41, verse 21. Look there at, at 41, 21, where it says, Set forth your case says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Here the scene changes to a cosmic courtroom. But who is on trial? None other than the reason for Judah's disobedience, the idols of the nations. The idols of the Gentiles are on trial. Now what are they on trial for? Who can reveal what the future holds? Ultimately, who is God? Are they able to guide the people of the nations? Can they instruct? Can they counsel? Can they teach? Can they understand the past and tell what is to come in the future? No, of course not. The Lord declares in verse 24, Behold, you are nothing, and your works are less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. The Lord proves himself once again to be the only God in heaven. The one who orders history. Who knows the end from the beginning. But the Lord does this not just to point out the foolishness of his people for going after idols that are shown to be nothing. He puts the nation's idols on trial to lay bare for all to see and understand the terrible condition of the Gentile world. He says in verses 28 through 29, But when I look, there is no one. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are an empty wind. Even though the nations are full of sin in idolatry, the Lord looks at the Gentiles around the world and describes their circumstances without his word for what it is. They have no direction. 
They have no counselor, no teacher to instruct them. They have nothing to guide them, but merely follow after an empty wind. Is this not the hopeless state of our world? It's tragic. But as the Lord has called those in the courtroom to behold the worthless idols and to behold the delusions of the nations, what does he now call our attention to? Behold my servant. Behold the one I have chosen to proclaim justice to the nations. Behold my servant who will lead the nations, who will give you true hope and rescue out of your pursuit of worthless things. He is the answer for the greatest needs of the nations. What have they lacked? What do they need? They have no one to guide them, to declare to them what is true. They need to hear from God. As one author explains, the servant of the Lord comes as the Lord's answer to the plight of a world without divine revelation. His ministry is justice to the nations, worldwide justice, genuine justice, justice established permanently on the earth. But what what does Isaiah mean by justice? What does this justice entail? Does he mean justice is merely as opposed to injustice? Or to mean what is fair? Now this is an important question to ask because the word justice has all kinds of weight in our time and is used and abused so often I wonder if we have lost the understanding of the concept of justice. Now there are some very important principles here that we need to, and I mean need to learn. Now, what I'm about to say is, in my mind, one of the most controversial things you can say in the year 2023. We don't get to define what the author means by the words he uses. The author is the only one who gets to define the words he uses. We cannot define the meanings of the words an author uses. We study the grammatical and historical context in order to understand how the author defines the words he is using. So what does this mean for us now? What that means is that we cannot take whatever 21st century Western North American concept of justice we have and just copy and paste it over this text and say, that's what it means. We cannot do that. Why? Because the author defines what he means by the words he uses. God tells us what he means by what he says, not the other way around. So then, how does Isaiah use this word justice here? Well, it is important to note that language, being as complex as it is, involves that words have a range of meanings depending on their context. For example, if I say the sentence, I'm set, like I'm set S-E-T, there are literally dozens of things I can mean by the word set, all depending on context. There is another very important, this is another very important principle we need to understand. Because in the same way, once we learn a biblical definition of a word or concept, we cannot then just assume that every time that word is used, it means the exact same thing. For example, Paul uses the word flesh often to describe our sin nature. But that doesn't mean that every time Paul uses the word flesh, he is referring to our sin nature. And it might sound a little silly to you, but you would be surprised by how often we do this and how often it runs us into trouble. And maybe some of you are wondering why, again, this is important at all. Well, first, I want you to not just understand what the Bible says when I preach, but also to get a better understanding of how to study the Bible for yourselves. And second, this is exactly what I needed to do this week. This is what I had to do in order to teach you this week. I'm not going to dig deep into the mind of God's word 
and show you the gemstones that I found. I'm going to show you how I got there and take you with me. I'm not going to tell you about the view from the top of the mountain. I'm taking you with me so you can see for yourselves. So, I sat down at my desk this week and asked myself, what is this message of justice that Jesus is proclaiming to the Gentiles? What do Isaiah and Matthew want us to understand about his proclamation of justice? Well, the word translated as justice, both in Hebrew and Greek, often carries the connotation of judgment. But if we look at the last two lines of Isaiah 42.4, we see that justice is being paired synonymously with the word law. And we know that these words are, are very closely related. For example, it's, it's kind of like how we use the phrases justice system and legal system synonymously. That is to, to mean the same thing. The system of justice corresponds to the system that also upholds what the law is. That which is right and which is wrong. And we see from this parallel language in verse 4 that this is the sense of justice that Isaiah has in view here. What Isaiah means here is that the servant doesn't merely proclaim justice to make wrong things right. He doesn't merely proclaim justice that only includes a message of coming judgment. The Messiah comes to proclaim what the, relation, what the nations need to hear. The Messiah proclaims what the Lord has declared to be just, what is right and what is wrong. He reveals the administration of God's rule of justice defined in his law to the people who do not know his law and do not experience his justice. I'll say that again. He reveals the administration of God's rule of justice defined in his law to the people who do not know his law and do not experience his justice. So now, when we turn back to Matthew 12, 21, we see that the Gentiles are said here not to be hoping in his law, but in him, in the servant himself. And so we see that Matthew is intentionally drawing this connection to make clear that the revelation of the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, is the revelation of God's law and justice itself. And we have already seen how Jesus has declared and demonstrated that he is the one who reveals the law of God. He proclaims justice to the Gentiles, those who do not understand what he has declared, what God has promised to be right and just. And this, this is the message of hope to the nations. However, it is not just Jesus' proclaiming this message that Matthew points to as fulfilled prophecy. What we also see from this Isaiah text is prophecy regarding Jesus' character and his conduct in his ministry. And remember, this is essential for what Matthew desires, especially his Jewish readers, to understand. That even though Jesus' conduct and character and the opposition he faced runs counter their, to their expectations of the Messiah, we need to know that this is all according to plan. This is what God said would characterize the ministry of his servant. And even as he is opposed and rejected by his own people. Now what does this passage tell us about the servant of the Lord? What he would be like and what he would do. Let's read again Matthew 12 verses 19 through 20. He will not quarrel or cry aloud. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench. This is, this is an amazing window into the heart of Christ. He's not quarrelsome, nor does he argue. Though he is opposed and others are seeking to kill him, he does not fight back or take them to task. Instead, he withdraws. 
Though he is rejected, he does not forcefully assert himself. Even when a crowd took hold of him and prepared to throw him off a cliff, even when, though he had the power and authority to say, zap your toast, he instead miraculously passes through the midst of them. Even when he is dying, being killed unjustly, rather than pronouncing judgment upon his murderers, he prays for them. This is the heart of our Savior. Now, when it says here, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets, that does not mean to say that the Messiah would be silent. How else would he be proclaiming justice if he were silent? Nor does it mean that the Messiah wouldn't speak publicly, or else how could the nations hear the message? It seems that this phrase here refers to one of two possible things. First, it might refer to the way that he would not seek to publicize himself. He wouldn't be given to self-aggrandizement. This would coincide with the fact that Jesus told those he healed not to make him known. The other option is that this phrase might refer to the fact that the people won't hear him in the sense of listen to his voice. No one will listen to or heed the message he proclaims to them. This isn't to say that literally no one would receive his message, as the Gentiles do hope in him. But it does mean that his ministry would be characterized by rejection and being ignored. This would also coincide with another prophecy from Isaiah, which Jesus quotes in Matthew thirteen fourteen, that the people will indeed hear, but never understand. And also fits within the context of his impending rejection which immediately follows our text today. In verse 20, we are told of the gentle care of our Lord and of his concern for the weak. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Isaiah tells us, and Matthew calls our attention to the fact that the Messiah's ministry will not be consumed with catering to the rich, renowned, and ruling class nor will he have an agenda so strident and forceful that he will bulldoze all in his path. Nor will he be unconcerned for the weak and the helpless as he marches forth to proclaim his more important message. No. Jesus' ministry is concerned with the gentle care of the weak and the weary and for the harassed and helpless. The Messiah will accomplish all his purposes without crushing the weak. Let's consider these images a bit further. We need to slow down and understand what these images point to so that we can meditate more clearly upon the gentleness and compassion of our Savior. Consider a reed. An appropriate image for an area like ours as we see tall grass, cattails, or bulrushes grow all around the many lakes and rivers we have in Manitoba. We even see them growing out of the drainage ditches. The reeds blow in the wind, but when they are hit, they, they don't snap. They just sort of kink and bend over. Even though it hasn't been broken off, it's very obviously bruised. And many of us are like that bruised reed. We wish we could hide the pain of our past, but more often than not, it is just evidently observed. We have been wounded, but Jesus doesn't break those who are already wounded. Instead, he heals and mends the brokenhearted. The image of the wick refers to an oil lamp a more foreign image to us. The wick burns as long as it has oil for its fuel. But as the lamp runs low on oil, the flame of the wick begins to smolder and becomes very close to going out altogether. 
some of us are like that lamp that has been burning for a long, long time. And there's just no more oil left to fuel us. We've strived and worked and nearly burned ourselves out. We're just utterly depleted. We're smoldering and running on fumes. The light is receding and we are scared the darkness might just overtake us. But our Savior does not quench the depleted spirit. Instead, in Him, we find refreshment and replenishment. There are many in this world, and sadly, all too many in the church, who do not know nor understand this image of our Savior. Rarely in Scripture do we get this kind of window into the heart of our Lord. But what did we just learn in the chapter previous? When Jesus describes himself, when he describes himself, he chose to describe himself as gentle and lowly in heart. That's how Jesus described his own heart. Gentle and lowly. We must not allow our understanding or descriptions of Jesus to become too one note in our thinking and our speech. Jesus is absolutely coming back as a conquering king. Absolutely. But sometimes I wonder if we are given to the same desires as the Jews of Jesus' day who just wanted the conquering king but did not want to be identified with the suffering servant. Because this kind of Messiah is just unthinkable to us. It is unconscionable to the Jewish people. But it's hardly an easy pill for anyone to swallow today. A gentle savior? A king of compassion? Are you kidding me? Even in this text, our, cultural, our culture today, with us included, struggle to hold the descriptions of Jesus in this text in tension. There is tension here. He is the chosen servant, loved by the Father, who uncompromisingly proclaims justice to the nations, and yet, and yet, does not quarrel, and his conduct is marked by gentleness towards the wounded and the depleted. We struggle to hold both of these things in tension. So often we are guilty of loving one to the dismissal of the other. Some of us love the Jesus who comes to bring justice to victory, who rules the earth from his throne, but don't really know what to do with his gentle, compassionate servant. Some of us are perfectly content with our kind and gentle Savior, but we don't really like to talk much about that judgment or that justice very much. But we must reckon with the reality of who our Savior is. He is both servant and and king. That is the tension we must learn to live within. He is both suffering servant and glorious king. Not one or the other. Both. Now for those of you who are here who are not yet Christians, I ask that you weigh these things very seriously in your mind. Jesus came to bring justice to victory. And with that is implied coming judgment as well. There is, only one, there is only hope in him for those who recognize who he is and those who trust in what he has accomplished at the cross. That God's justice against our sin was settled in his death and resurrection. But no... No one understand that he does not kick people when they're down. He cares for the wounded and restores the depleted. Hope is only found in Jesus, our servant king. But there is something else we as Christians desperately need to understand from this text. Jesus came as a servant to proclaim a message to the nations. So you and me, as his disciples are called to proclaim the gospel message to the nations as servants. We are his servants. Jesus came in the form of a servant and taught us how to serve. 
We must learn from this portrait of our Savior King. We must learn from the description of Jesus' conduct in this text to follow after him as servants who serve in humility and gentleness. We cannot follow him in his role as king. but We are commanded as Christians to follow him in his role as the servant of all. These verses, especially verses 19 and 20, paint a picture of Jesus which is an example which is an example to us for how we should conduct ourselves in whatever ministry the Lord calls us to like Jesus we must not be quarrelsome we must not forcefully assert ourselves like Jesus we do not come to serve in a way that is brash or arrogant or in a way that disregards the weak We must learn gentleness and humility from our gentle and humble Savior. What a powerful thing it would be if we patterned our lives after the servant-heartedness of Jesus. What a testimony to our culture. Because I don't know about you, but to me, quarreling and crying aloud pretty much summarizes most of the discourse of our time. This is such a radical departure from the inclination of our hearts and the attitudes of our culture that I believe many of us will struggle to even agree with what this text is saying that our, servants, that our service ought to look like. Just like we may have a problem of holding the tension of recognizing that Jesus is both suffering servant and conquering king, we also struggle to hold the tension of Christ-like servanthood that both uncompromisingly proclaims the gospel and radically follows Christ's example of humility and gentleness. We struggle to hold that tension as well. Now, why do I think this is the case? I'm glad you asked. In our culture, one of the issues we are suffering from today is the problem of false equivalence false equivalence, saying two things are the same when they're not. We incorrectly view two things that are the same that are actually very different. You see, Jesus perfectly towed the line and properly exhibited both appropriate gentleness and appropriate firmness. He was perfectly gentle and firm at all appropriate times. But here is our problem. In our society today, we incorrectly equate gentleness with passivity and firmness with aggression. We incorrectly equate gentleness with passivity and firmness with aggression. And this is a point I especially want to direct to us men. Why? Because many men spend their lives jumping between the opposite sides of the spectrum, fluctuating between passivity and aggression. This is not only a male issue, but I do believe this is especially important for us men to hear and understand. Because these are the exact failures of Adam we see in Genesis 3. When the serpent tempts Eve, rather than protecting his bride, what does he do? He is passive. And he remains silent when he should have been assertive and firm. And when the Lord confronts his sin, rather than admitting his own fault, what does he do? He becomes aggressive and accuses his wife when he should have taken the responsibility. And the errors are on all sides here. We call gentle behavior passivity, and we call firm behavior aggressive. The aggressive man foolishly considers his aggression to be appropriate firmness and at the same time accuses the gentle man of being passive. And the passive man foolishly considers his passivity to be appropriate gentleness and at the same time accuses the firm man of being aggressive. Thus, the desire to live out Christ-like gentleness and firmness is to be condemned on both sides. 
But we must not continue to believe these false equivalences. We must correct our understanding of Christ-like servanthood and pursue a ministry of humility marked by both gentleness and firmness. Because those of us given to passivity might struggle to follow Jesus' example of boldly and uncompromisingly proclaiming the message of hope to the ju- and justice to the nations. Oh, we don't want to rock the boat too much, Jesus. But to the more aggressive among us, Jesus' behavior here in chapter 12 might just seem completely unthinkable to you to replicate. When facing opposition of co- and conflict, rather than fighting back, he withdraws? What a coward. A real man never retreats when he knows when he's right. Absolutely not. A savior that was not quarrelsome or argumentative, even when he is opposed and rejected, is hard for us to follow. But we must persist in humility and gentleness, even in the midst of opposition and rejection. Because just like our servant king, we too will experience both opposition and rejection. But like him, we must not be quarrelsome. We must not default to worldly attitudes of passivity or aggression. Getting banned on social media or disciplined at work because you spoke the truth, but you did so as an arrogant jerk, is not actually commendable. And like Jesus, we must treat the wounded and depleted, with the gentleness and compassion they require. We must no longer view the people we should be desiring to serve as our political or ideological opponents. Rather than viewing people as opponents who need to be promptly corrected, instead consider and recognize their deep brokenness that requires the tender care of Christ. They should radically transform how we serve others in Christ-like humility. The next time you interact with a rainbow flag-wearing individual inclined to shout you down, don't respond in the same way. Recognize the woundedness within them and in humility minister to them. When you are again, for the dozenth time, met with vehement rejection from a friend or a family member, remember that your Savior tenderly cares for you when you feel utterly depleted. And continue to firmly proclaim the message that is the only hope for the nations. Even in the midst of opposition and rejection, God declared that this is what the the ministry of his chosen servant would be like. Should we, as God's servants, expect it to look any different for us? No. So now, behold your servant king and go serve as he did. Lord, we ask for your help to do just that. Lord, we've seen just how impossible it seems to live out these tensions and to serve as you did, one who is not quarrelsome, even in the midst of opposition and rejection. Lord, teach us humility. Teach us how to be gentle, even when we are shouted down and hated. Teach us also to be firm when we need to be, and to give us wisdom to know the situations that require the difference of approach. Lord, teach us how to be your servants. And may we live as your servants in a world that desperately needs to hear the gospel message, which is the only hope for the nations. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the last song.
charge is this. In our text today, Matthew strategically places a passage from Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, in between opposition and rejection. The opposition Jesus faced and his impending rejection as Messiah by the Jewish leadership runs counter to the expectations most Jews had for the ministry of the Messiah. But Matthew wants to make clear to his primary Jewish audience that this is all according to plan. Isaiah had prophesied centuries earlier, describing what the servant of the Lord would be like and what he would do. He would not be quarrelsome or forcefully assert himself. Instead, he would care for the broken and the weak. And even though Jesus was not heard by his own people, his proclamation of justice is a message of hope to the nations. As we herald that message, let us learn from this portrait of our servant king. That like him, we would serve in all humility and gentleness, even in the midst of opposition and rejection. And for our benediction today, we read what follows uh, Isaiah 42, verse 4. The Lord speaks to his servant. Thus says God, Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisons, those who sit in darkness. I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. 
before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Go serve your king.